And uh, this morning uh, is the second to last sermon in this series, and this morning we're talking about the desire to be chosen, the desire to be chosen. And uh, as we think about this, I wonder if you recognize this face. Uh, Some of you do, some of you don't. ABC has a series called um, Extreme Weight Loss, and this guy's name is Chris Powell. And the reason I'm flashing Chris, who's a personal trainer, up on the board is because Chris basically takes people who are over 50% of their body weight is fat, and he works with them for a year to help them transform. And, uh, and it's a fascinating show. But the reason I, I wanted to bring him up this morning is because every time he, he gets literally hundreds of requests every year of, from people who want to work with him in this program. And he only can select a small handful of people. And when he goes to select a person... He always goes to where they are, and he often goes to their workplace or where they're, they're doing activities or different kinds of things, and surprises them. And when he shows up, of course, they know exactly who he is, but the first thing he says to them is, I choose you. I choose you for this next year to be the most transformative year of your life. Now, why would Chris focus on saying those words to those people. Because he knows, and they know, that literally, again, hundreds, thousands of people request to be able to be one of those individuals. And he wants them, as they embark on this challenging year, to know that they're special, that they're unique, that of all those people, he selected this person for this experience. That's what it means to be chosen. To be chosen is something which we all desire. It means to be thought of as special. It means to be cherished. It means to be appreciated. It means to be desired. Set apart from other people to be a unique person in all that God is doing in our lives. Why is this a yearning in our heart? Why do we desire to have this experience? of being chosen. I believe the reason goes all the way back to creation. If you read Genesis chapter 1, what you discover is in creation, God set aside male and female, and it says he made them in God's image. Of all the creatures in creation, male and female were made together to express the uniqueness of the image of God. They were special. They were different than the rest of creation. That's embedded in our DNA. But not only are we created in God's image, it says there that God then gave them dominion over all the earth. He gave them a unique and special place, a different place than all the other creatures. Dominion over all the earth and then to be fruitful and to multiply and to have responsibility over the entire world. And if that weren't enough, it says then that God blessed them in the garden. So he created them in his image. He gave them a special task to have dominion over all creation, and it says he blessed them. We were created by God to have this uniqueness, this specialness about us. Now, of course, all creation has experienced a brokenness, hasn't it? Technically, it's called the fall. We we literally rebelled against our Father to choose to go our own way. And in that brokenness of the world, that brokenness has impacted this yearning of us. 
This idea of being chosen is a tension within our lives. We yearn for it. We desire it. Sometimes we do crazy things in order for people to recognize us and to choose us. And yet this desire is embedded within us because we yearn for Eden. We yearn for that relationship again. We yearn for that perfection. We yearn to be chosen in our relationship with the Father. Now, there are at least two aspects to this idea of being chosen, especially when we get into it and thinking about it from the, the, the idea of what the Scriptures teach. The first is a theological or philosophical viewpoint. Now, we all know the intellectual struggles that we can have about the idea of election and being chosen, and uh, I'm not going to um, say that that's not important. That's critically important, and I'd encourage you, if you have those kinds of issues and struggles, to read this book by R.C. Sproul called Chosen by God. It's a very helpful book. Many of us around the church would be happy to talk to you about that whole theological issue and what you struggle with, the elders here. BP and myself would be happy to do that. But that really is not what we're going to be focusing on so much this morning. This morning we're going to be looking at the emotional and psychological side of this deep desire that we have embedded in our souls to be chosen. Now granted, you really can't break those two things apart. The two areas of the theological and the philosophical and the emotional and psychological, those things blend together as you're reading the Scriptures. But we're going to be looking at the impact of this need that we have within us from our createdness to be chosen. Now, as we think about that, um, the first thing I think it's important for us to understand is that the idea of being chosen is a huge theme in the Bible. Think about it. What are the Israelites called throughout the Old Testament? God's chosen people. That's exactly right. God's chosen people. And God says in Deuteronomy to Moses, through Moses, to the people of God, he says this, the Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession. But get this, not because you are more in number than any other people, but because the Lord loves you and is keeping his oath towards your fathers. You see, back in the days of the Israelites, in the days of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, the big deal was the assumption that in order to be chosen by God, you had to have a uniqueness about yourself. You had to be a strong, large group of people. You had to be a powerful nation to have that kind of designation. God said, no, 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 I'm going to look at Abraham and his family and his small family, and I'm going to bless all the nations through him by selecting him and his weak people, not because they're more numerous. As a matter of fact, later in Deuteronomy, Moses said this, the Lord your God is not giving this good land to you because of your righteousness. For you are a stubborn people. You've been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. So what the scriptures are saying is that God doesn't select his people, the Jews, because they're something great innately about them. As a matter of fact, they're weak, they're small, they're stubborn, they're rebellious. But God says, I'm going to set my heart upon you. I'm going to set my love upon you. I'm going to do something in you so that the world may see and know of my love for my creation. And so he sets them apart. Now, it's not just in the Old Testament, though. If you read in the New Testament, as Jesus was working with his disciples, there are many different places he says something like this, but at the end of his ministry in John 15, Jesus says this to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and I appointed you. 
He said, really, guys, you're a bunch of scruffy no-names. But I have chosen you because I love you. And I'm going to send you out by my spirit to bring transformation to this world. Not only does he say that to the people in the Old Testament, his chosen people, the Israelites, to the, to the disciples, he says that to us as well. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and verse 5, it says this, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, the last time I checked, a dead person doesn't do a very good job of choosing. They're just there. But he goes on and says, but God, even when we were dead in our trespasses, this so moves Paul. Notice he he changes tense. He said, instead of saying you anymore, he says we. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. You see, the big theme in all these verses from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament is this idea of grace. God identifies a people who are not worthy, who are not great in the eyes of the world, who sometimes come across as as stubborn and rebellious and hard-nosed and hard-hearted, and God changes their life and moves in with his Holy Spirit and transforms them and takes them from being rejected to being accepted and loved by him. Huge theme in the Bible. So much so that, that, that C.S. Lewis made this interesting comment. He said, he said, amiable agnostics will talk cheerfully about man's search for God, but for me, they might as well talk about the mouse's search for a cat. You see, what, what C.S. Lewis is saying there is, we don't desire God. We want to rebel and walk away from him. But God in his gracious love moves towards us. As he said, God closed in on me. It's something like this. One of the great blessings and joys I've had over the years, I know BP's experienced this, of being a pastor is doing weddings. And probably one of the most exciting times in a wedding is when all the bridesmaids and all the groomsmen have come in and they're all lining up there and suddenly, usually the music changes and everyone in the congregation stands up and turns and looks towards the back of the sanctuary And then suddenly in the doorway arrives the bride. And she's on her father's arms. And she begins to walk down the aisle. Now, what what I get to do as a pastor, what is something which most of you don't have a chance to or don't think of doing, what I like to do at that time is I like to look over at the groom. And I like to see the look on his eye. And you see this sense. Well, here's a picture of, of a couple. Not... Now, for some reason, the photographer chose black and white on one side and color on the other, but you can just see in his eyes, here she comes. Here's the one who said yes to my invitation. And he's so excited in his heart. And then you can see the bride coming down and the smile on her face. And there's this sense in the whole congregation that she is the chosen one. She's the special one with that white dress. This is her day, and everyone's standing and looking at her coming down. The aisle. And you know what the scriptures say about God's children? They say this As the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. The Bible says if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, 
that God looks upon you like a bride coming down the aisle. Jesus has clothed you in white, though you deserve to be clothed in muddy garments of brokenness and sin. He's clothed you in white, and he said, this is my bride in whom I am well pleased. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, the good news is you're not here this morning by accident. You're hearing this morning that God loves and extends a promise of hope and expectation to all those who would respond to him. There's a free offer given to you in the gospel of Jesus Christ that if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You can know today what it feels like to be chosen by God. Now, when we've experienced that, what happens? What are the results of being chosen? Well, there's at least two that we find in the Scriptures. The first one is this. The technical term is called sonship. Now, we could call it sonship. We could call it daughtership. We could call it being children of God. But again, the Scriptures come back and say, you, you, become, you become sons and daughters of the living God. Paul puts it this way in, in Galatians 3. He says, when the fullness of time has come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, I know this is mixing metaphors. First, I say you're a bride. Now it says you're a son. But hang in there because the Bible loves to do that to us. Here he says, when you come into faith in Christ, You are made into a secure relationship with the Father. You are no longer an outcast. You are no longer a servant. You are now considered Christ's child, secure and accepted in the love of the Father. I could get into talking about what adoption meant in Roman times. I could get into all the the details about that, but suffice to say that What Paul is saying here is when you are adopted, you have all the rights, but you also have the relationship. And the father loves you and holds you to his own. We see this, don't we, in the the story of the prodigal son. Luke 15, the son rejects the father, takes his inheritance, goes away. You think the father would reject him and forget him, but the father waits and anticipates. We see in that story that daily the father is looking out waiting for his son to come home. And when his son comes back and in the rags of having lived with and fed the pigs and wants to tell his father, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Just let me work with your servants. The father will hear none of it. He wraps his arms around his son and says, my son who was lost now is found. And that's the kind of relationship the father wants to have with us, accepted as sons and daughters of his of his. But not only accepted, but then the second thing we have to understand is that we are called into a relationship with him to service. Never in the scriptures do we find the idea of being called and being chosen by him simply for the sake of being there and having that relationship. He always calls us into doing from the basis of who we are. 
Get this, for example, when Jesus called the disciples, talked to the disciples, he said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit. You see, doing service in the name of the Father is the calling of his children. And sonship and service always go together as a result of being chosen. Another passage is Ephesians chapter 2. Paul says, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Service is always our calling as God's people. Now, one of the most interesting stories I've read over the last few years uh, about, about the impact of being called as children of God and moving into service begins with the story of a man that many of you have heard of because of his product. His name was Arthur Guinness. And there's a great book that is called, you can barely see it, In Search for God and Guinness by Stephen Max Mansfield. And the subtitle is A Biography of the Beer that Changed the World. Now, what you probably don't know is that Arthur Guinness was a deeply committed follower of Jesus Christ. And the impact, not only of his first generation, but then the generations afterward of his family were huge, not only in Ireland, but in Great Britain and literally all over the world. As committed believers in Christ were involved in running a good business and a responsible business, but using their resources from that business for the glory of God and for the good of humanity. Now, this book goes into great detail. I won't try to read everything to you, but let me read to you some of the things that this family has been involved with over the years. For example, Arthur Guinness himself founded the first Sunday schools in Ireland. He fought against dueling. He he chaired the board of a hospital for the poor, and he also uh, spoke to the the landed gentry about the fact that they were called to use their resources responsibly for others. Um, Here's another story. The the Guinness chief medical officer in 1900 personally visited thousands of homes in Dublin and used what he learned to help the company fight disease, squalor, and ignorance. Their efforts led to the establishment of the Irish version of the Red Cross. Um, In the 1920s, a Guinness worker would enjoy full medical and dental care, massage services, reading rooms, subsidized meals, a company-founded pension, subsidies for funeral expenses, educational benefits, sports facilities, free concerts, lectures, and entertainment, and was also guaranteed two pints of Guinness beer per day. You see what the family was doing? They're saying, we are responsible to reinvest in our people, the people who are working for us. They built homes for the workers. They would pay for workers going to technical school. They would pay for them going to university. Another one, during World War I, the Guinness, Guinness guaranteed that all its employees who served in uniform that their jobs would be waiting for them when they came home, and he also, Guinness also paid half the salaries to, each man, to the families of each man who were serving. But not only were they involved in doing activities like this, the Guinness family was very involved in declaring the gospel. Harry Granton Guinness, grandson of the brewery founder Arthur Guinness, was a Christian leader of such impact that he was ranked, among, uh, ranked with Dwight L. Moody and Charles Spurgeon in his day. 
He's been called the Billy Graham of the 19th century. And many of us have read works by the fellow by the name of Oz Guinness, who comes directly from the lineage of the Guinness family. Now, why am I bringing that up? Remember I said that your vocation is not incidental but integral with the kingdom of God? The work of the Guinnesses impacted the entire community because they recognized that their calling was a calling from God to do their work unto him and to use their resources for him. Children of God are called to sonship and service. But then, of course, the other thing we have to look at is the fact that the opposite of being chosen is the experience of rejection. And in the context of a broken world, Rejection's a reality, isn't it? We've all experienced rejection on different levels. What can a person who's experienced God's love do in response to experiencing rejection in this world? At least three things, quickly. The first is this. Human rejection does not shake God's acceptance of us. Our experience of being chosen and cared for and loved by God as his children gives us a security so that as we face human rejection, we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. That's what God said to Joshua in Joshua 1.5, and he says it to us as well, because in John 14, Jesus says, I will never leave you orphans. I will come to you. I will not leave you abandoned. God will not reject his children, even when we experience it from humans. Secondly, God uses rejection in our human life to turn our hope toward him. Again and again, God wants us to see that our ultimate hope is not found in this world, but it's found in him. John sixteen thirty three. in this world, Jesus said, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. In Hebrews chapter 12, Jesus it says, For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame. Jesus said, If they rejected me, they'll reject you. But the hope that we have is built, as the old hymn says, on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. The third thing we have to understand is that God uses rejection in our lives to shape our character to be like Jesus. Romans chapter 5 speaks of this in verses 3 through 5. In James chapter 1, James says, when all kinds of trials and temptations come into your lives, my brothers, don't resist them as intruders. Welcome them as friends. Realize they've come to test your faith and to produce within you a quality of endurance, perseverance. God wants us, our, our characters to be shaped like Jesus And oftentimes, it includes failure, rejection, and painful experiences. Last week, Janet and I had the opportunity to participate in a divorce recovery seminar in Annapolis, Maryland. For over 15 years, I was very, very involved in doing divorce recovery seminars around different places in the country, as well as overseas some. But I hadn't been involved in them for many years. And these friends in Annapolis who've been doing this seminar invited us to come back, and it was such a joy for me to participate and to be in this seminar and to see these folks, all whom had gone through divorce, 
but to have them hear again of the hope of Jesus and to hear this message. God doesn't define you on the basis of your divorce. You do not have a big D emblazoned upon you that you must wear for the rest of your life. No, God uses experiences like divorce to shape us. But we're we're not divorced. We're persons who have gone through divorce. You are not shaped by your rejection. Your rejection is an experience that God uses to shape you to be the person God wants you to be. And to see the hope in the eyes of those men and women that God had a purpose and a plan for them beyond their experience of rejection and that he could actually take that pain and translate it into becoming sweetness in their lives. One person put it this way. He said, I wouldn't wish divorce upon my worst enemy, but I wouldn't give up what God's done in my life through my divorce for anything. See, God wants to take experiences of rejection and to show us that we're not made in the image of that rejection. We're made in his image and accepted by him, that we can have a hope in him that will last beyond the circumstances of this world and that he uses rejection to shape our character. So, What have we heard this morning? At least three things. The first thing we've heard this morning is that we all desire to be chosen and that in Jesus Christ we can experience the love of the Father and be accepted in Him. The second thing we learned is that chosen people are secure, but secure in order to serve. We're not here to do our own thing. We're here to do His work through us. The third thing we see is that rejection doesn't define us God does. You know, in closing, uh, I think of a f- close friend of mine named Russ Cadle. Russ is one of my mentors. He, I worked together with Russ when he was one of the pastors in my home church when I was in college. Later, I had a chance to serve on a staff with Russ. He's always been kind of an older brother to me. But I'll never forget, back in the, uh, when he was in his mid-30s, and I was still even younger than that, uh, he was getting ready to take a whole group of people on a trip to Israel. You know, sometimes in churches, you get people together, you go to Israel together. And he was getting ready to take, of course, to go to Israel, he had to get a passport. He'd never been overseas. And here he is about 35 years old, and he goes to get his passport for the first time. And when he signs up to get his passport and information, they say, we're sorry, we don't have a birth certificate for you. And he went back and checked again and again, we're sorry, we don't have a birth certificate for you. And he was confused. And so he went to his mother and he said, why, why can't I find my birth certificate? Well, what he learned at 35 for the first time was that he'd been adopted. And it shook him to the core. His parents never talked to him about that. And it took him a good bit of time to process that. He began to think about what it meant to be adopted by God and to understand that God's adoption meant he had full status. And he always knew his parents loved him and cared for him deeply. 
he finally had to go to his dad. And he, he, he said to him, Dad, I don't understand. Why didn't you ever tell me that I was adopted? And his dad said this to them, Son, you've always been my son. I've never thought of you about, thought of you about it being anything else. You're my son. And that's what the father says to his children, to you. I've chosen you. You're my son, my daughter. I've never thought of you as anything else. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your love that we can experience the love of a father who chose us, it says in the Scriptures, before the foundation of the earth, that we should be loved by you. And then to be called by you in the security of that love to serve others. And to understand that our lives and our characters are defined by your acceptance, not by the acceptance or the rejection of others. Oh Lord, help us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that you have given to us because you've never thought of us as anything else than your children. In Jesus' name, amen.